We call this factfulness in Gapminder. You know, factfulness is a new attitude. It's being relaxed and only carrying strong opinions about things that are based on fact. It's very relaxing because you don't crash into surprises in life. If you have strong opinions which are not based on facts, you are going to have problems sooner or later. But if you join the factfulness movement, you will be more relaxed. It's an easier way of living to base things on facts. That quote is from a 2015 TEDx talk in Singapore by Hans Rosling. Rosling is the author of a book called Factfulness that you probably saw on Twitter or on um, some other social media, depending on where you are. And it's a really, it's a really nice book. It's a book that was published in 2018 and is a nice contribution to the theme of how does one approach this data-driven world that we live in. Other books like this are The Half-Life of Facts, How Not to Be Wrong, How to Lie with Statistics, Thinking Fast and Slow, and A Field Guide to Lies. Each of those authors is like a magician who wants to peel the curtain back, only instead of a magic trick, it's information, and then instead of a curtain, it's our reaction to numbers and to words. Rosling's book has received a lot of praise. It popped up a number of times on my Twitter timeline, it came to me via email suggestions, but the patient zero for this book was probably Bill Gates, who uh, wrote about it, quote, Factfulness is a fantastic book, and I hope a lot of people read it, end quote. In an attempt to get more people to read it, Gates actually gave it away to students who qualified. So if you were a recent college graduate, you could email um, an organization that Gates was set up with who uh, would send you a digital copy of the book. Before we begin on the book, let's start with an analogy. In the summer of 2007, Paul Priest released a computer game called Desktop Tower Defense. The object of that game was to build towers, obstacles, and meandering passages to slow, stun, and shoot creepers who appeared on the left high-end side of the screen. At first, the creepers were slow, few, and simple, but as the game progressed, they became faster, plentiful, and multifaceted. This is kind of how information is today. Using habits like Cal Newport's deep work, most knowledge workers can scale up or down their information flow. Delete Twitter from your phone. Use a website blocker for certain hours. Turn off notifications. Unsubscribe. We can design solutions to deal with less, to a point. In Rosling's book and in his various talks on YouTube, he's giving us tools for the information that we choose to handle, the things that we want to come through to us, we can handle better if we take his advice. Rosling passed away in February 2017, but I guess that he doesn't want us to restrict ourselves, but instead he'd encourage us to allow. Rosling would have wanted us to become more engaged. He would want us to consume more so we can do more. So let's jump into some ideas and some lessons from his book and from others. Ready? And many people have said that I'm good, I can bring life to numbers. No, 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 no. Many people say I'm interested in numbers. No, I think numbers are boring. I think people are wonderful. People are interesting. Lives are interesting. So what you need to do to understand this is not only look at numbers. You need the numbers, yes, but you need to understand the lives between, behind the numbers. 
We can never understand a country or the world without numbers, nor can we understand it with only numbers. Rosling is good with numbers, but he's not excellent. How to Lie with Statistics and A Field Guide to Lies are two books that are both better for thinking about access shenanigans, sample size, mistakes, and what averages really mean. Rosling's greatness was taking one step back and looking at the crazy concoctions we get when we mix people and numbers. One of the big ones is to shift our thinking from A or Z to A to Z. Rosling wrote about why we prefer the former, quote, I think this is because human beings have a strong dramatic instinct toward binary thinking, a basic urge to divide things into two distinct groups with nothing but an empty gap in between them, end quote. He continued in another part of the book, quote, We love to dichotomize good versus bad, heroes versus villains, my country versus the rest. Dividing the world into two distinct sides is simple and intuitive, and also dramatic because it implies conflict and we do it without thinking all the time." End quote. But things aren't one or the other, they're both, but that's really difficult to measure. Rosling wrote, quote, As with most discussions about the private versus the public sector, the answer is not either or, it's case by case, it's both. End quote. Dan Carlin agrees about this dichotomy of explanations. He said in one podcast interview, quote, Anytime I hear an argument that's black and white, I can almost automatically assume that it's wrong. Sometimes reality is black and white, but that happens so rarely, the majority of the time it's complex, end quote. A fellow student of history is Dr. John Nagel, who wrote a book called Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife, about the different conflicts in Malaysia and Vietnam and why some countries had more success there than others. And one of his key findings was that organizations really matter. The way an organization approaches things really matter. And we can make a mistake within our organization if we create these false dichotomies. This is what Nagel wrote, quote, the American way of war is marked by a belief that the nation is at war or at peace. The binary nature of war leaves no space for political military interface, end quote. So if you have a false dichotomy, you rule out that whole middle spectrum of possible solutions for solving your problems. And that's a lot of things. The problem is, is that nuanced thinking is really difficult thinking. And... I saw this with my kids just the other day. My eight-year-old was asking me about um, another child that she knows. And she said, why if so-and-so um, do this to me? Why do they act this way? And I said, well, part of the reason is this, and part of the reason is that, and part of the reason is this. And we came up with four or five different explanations that are all kind of part of the reason. Those, those things all interact and combine and mix and they form this stew where if you changed any one thing, you might change it, but, but because it's a person, it's complex and it's complicated. And it doesn't necessarily mean that's what the solution is. And that's life. So many of life's problems are these messy blends where um, there's, no, there's no simple answer. There's no single statistic that truly reflects the world. I think Rosalind wants us to take a more nuanced view of the world. He wants us to think of things from A to Z, not A or Z. 
If nuance thinking is figuring out the now, then interpreting lines is figuring out the future. Ray Dalio is really fond of saying that everything we face in life is another one of those, and the secret is just figuring out which one of those it is. So, which example from the past? What thing that has already happened is a good model for the next thing that's going to happen? We looked at one form of this in episode 93, The Two Worlds of Business. In that podcast, we revisited Brian Arthur's insight that different sectors of the economy had different rules. He called one the optimization economy and one the innovation economy. And Arthur, in his writings, was careful of the A or Z to A to Z warning we just noted. He writes that things are never one or the other, but there's this constant state of evolution that happens. And the categories are just there to help us think about things and use the right tools and assumptions for solving our problems. Rosling is really big on lines in his book, and he notes that some lines we can look at as, as being straight. For example, Netflix subscribers on a quarterly basis was mostly a straight line from 2012 to 2015. Rosling writes that other lines are more like a slide you would see at a playground. The left-hand side is relatively flat, and then there's this drop in the middle, and then the right-hand side is relatively flat again. And things like the measles death rate from 1985 through 2015 has been a slide like this. But we also see the opposite of that kind of an S-curve with things that we practice and get good at. It's called the sigmoid curve, and that is flat on the left, and then an increase, and then it plateaus again on the right. And that's a really good example of how we gain mastery at different things. Other curves are hyperbolic. These are the power laws that Arthur wanted people to recognize. Peter Thiel wrote about power laws. They are, quote, the law of the universe, end quote. The worst thing you can do, Rosling says, is assume that lines will just continue as they are. Lines are just lines. They're not predictions about the future. And single lines face another problem that he warns us against, the lonely number. The lonely number, Rosling writes, uh, doesn't give us a very good view of the world. He remembers talking about environmental issues at a global conference, and someone from India or China had come up to him, and, he, and, he, and the delegate had said, listen, we're looking at emissions the wrong way. We shouldn't look at total emissions anymore. This is what Rosling writes, quote, I had for some time been appalled by the systematic blaming of climate change on China and India based on total emissions per nation. It was like claiming that obesity was worse in China than in the United States because the total body weight of the Chinese population was higher than that of the United States population. Arguing about emissions per nation was pointless when there was such enormous variation in population size." End quote. So, <laughs> the single line of total emissions gives one view, but if you do emissions per person, you get another view. And that's the kind of thing that Rosling wants us to do. He wants us to consider both of those. He wants us to get past the lonely number. This is the part of his book, Factfulness, where Rosling starts to um, echo, to repeat, to sing again some of the things that we've seen in other books. He wants us to have good data. He wants us to get past small sample sizes and other kind of errors that happen when we collect what we're going to process. He wrote, quote, a serious problem requires a serious database, end quote. 
I was thinking about this one day while eating hamburgers and french fries with my two daughters. We were sitting in a restaurant and we were talking about what the most dangerous jobs in the world are. So we looked it up and it turns out the most dangerous job year in and year out is logging. People die from falling from trees, people die from chainsaw accidents, people die from trees falling on them. There's a host of things that can happen, but there's not that many people who work in the logging industry and there's not that many logging deaths per year. And as we sat around enjoying our french fries and hamburger and then ice cream for dessert, I thought, well, maybe maybe logging isn't the most dangerous job. Maybe sitting is the most dangerous job. But that's really hard to figure out. But that's the kind of thing that Rosling would encourage us to figure out. There's more people who have weight problems in the United States than there's people who will probably ever work in the logging industry for the history of the logging industry. So logging seems dangerous because it's an easy thing to count. But how dangerous is it really? How much should we be concerned about it? I don't know. Numbers, whether they're in lines or charts or however they're presented, are just another map of the world. Terrain maps have scale marks, 1,000 to 1, 10,000 to 1, and so on. Jerry Bolton, a professor of Renaissance studies at Queen Mary University of London, is quoted in an Atlantic article saying, quote, all cultures have always believed that the map they valorize is real and true, and objective and transparent. All maps are always subjective. Even today's online geospatial applications on all your mobile devices and tablets, be they produced by Google or Apple or whoever, are still some extent subjective maps. No map is any better or worse than any other map. End quote. Maps are all about what agenda an organization wants to pursue. And it's the same thing for numbers. So we should be aware of lonely numbers. We should be aware of sample size error. We should think of things as being a spectrum, not a single number that is going to encapsulate everything. Hans Rosling wants us to look at figures and facts and fancy charts like a sub-sandwich. Rather than start chewing and digesting what we consume, we can take a moment to lift the bread, inspect the cheese, question the meat choice, and see if there are too many onions and not enough mayonnaise. Getting the numbers right is just a start. Next, we need to look at our brain and the world. We've touched on the psychology of people, human tendencies, and thinking a lot already on this podcast and in the posts at thewaiterspad.com. The summary version is this. If you get good feedback and good results in some area, just keep doing what you're doing. Episode 92 of the podcast about traffic included some examples about this. We make mistakes and take missteps when we don't couple the right feedback and results. Rosling hits on negativity, fear, generalization, blame, and urgency. Partially, we get these responses from media diets. If it bleeds, it leads. Hot takes are like this, too. In the summer of 2018, Bill Simmons hosted a podcast in Las Vegas with a smattering of NBA guests. One of them was Daryl Morey, who Simmons was giving a hard time to about being wrong. Well, Morey said, when I'm wrong, I have to live with the decisions for four years, the length of a contract. When you're wrong, he admonished Simmons, you just write another column. The reaction culture isn't just sports. Just search Twitter for, there's always a tweet. Our fast brains are mostly good, but we get in trouble when Mark Twain supposedly expressed, it's not what we know that gets us into trouble, it's what we know that ain't so. This happens because the world changes. Why is figuring this stuff out so hard? 
because the world is always changing. One of my favorite books is Early Retirement Extreme, written by Jacob Fisker, who, like Rosling, is someone who wants us to look at the world differently. Fisker wrote, quote, it is interesting that we refer to primitive people as primitive. When every primitive person is able to build his own tools and shelter, make his own clothes, provide heat and water, and knows what food is edible and what isn't, how many of us are capable of that? End quote. The book is more philosophic than financial, and another idea that Fisker puts forth is what he calls the Renaissance ideal. I like this because we live in an entropic world. That means at any moment you are organizing the world or paying someone to organize the world for you. During the drafting of this post, someone came by and mowed my grass. I paid them for that organization. Fisker's formula is to increase the areas where you organize the world. These are often where you get paid. For example, if you cut your own hair, do your own taxes, maintain your own car, or plan your own retirement, you are fighting entropy rather than paying someone to fight entropy for you. Published in 2010, Fisker warns that while expertise is harder now than it used to be, competence is not, and competence is your finish line. Yet, we tend to take the path of least resistance. We become, in Tyler Cowen's uh, phrasing, complacent. In most of his talks, Rosling polls his audience about the state of the world. What percentage of the world has electricity? What percentage of girls attend primary school? What percentage of children die before the age of two? And so on. What's interesting about the poll is, not, is the non-random distribution. People generally choose answers that were correct when they learn them. Rosalind explains in one of his TED Talks, quote, Why do people get things wrong? It's not because they're ignorant. It's because they have preconceived ideas. When the result of a group is worse than chance, the problem is not ignorance. If you have ignorance, you have a blank mind. I don't know. I'll press any button, end quote. In his lectures, he playfully compares the audience to chimpanzees, where if he gives chimpanzees a banana with A on it, and one with B on it, and one with C on it, the chimpanzees will randomly choose the bananas, but the people, the people will not. The people tend not to be as optimistic about the world as they should be. Jacob Fisker wants people to fight entropy themselves, rather than pay others to fight it for them. Rosling wants people to update their facts. Mark Andreessen tweeted about Chuck Klosterman's book, What If We're Wrong, that it was, quote, wide-ranging meditation on how to think about the reality that we're probably wrong about most of the things we do believe. Hard to read and not emerge humbled, end quote. This is our puzzle. How do we make decisions in a world with butterfly effects using brains optimized for a thousand years ago? I have some ideas. The big idea, the big solution to all this, is to be curious. And this is what Rosling writes, too. He wrote, quote, Being curious means being open to new information and actively seeking it out, end quote. Good grounds for curiosity are that's interesting moments. Rosling had one of these when seeing an unfinished second story of a house. He wrote, quote, Better to add the bricks to the house as you buy them. Thieves can't steal them. Inflation won't change their value. No one needs to check your credit rating. In over 10 or 15 years, you are slowly building your family a better home. Instead of assuming that the Sollies are lazy and or disorganized, assume they are smart and ask yourself, how can this be such a smart solution? End quote. So it's that curiosity. It's seeing something like, why is that house half unfinished? And using that to further your line of questioning. Here's how Daryl Morey explained his first That's Interesting moment to Michael Lewis. The year was 1987, and the Cleveland Indians baseball team were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Morey said, 
I was like, this is it. The Indians have sucked for years. Now they're going to win the World Series. And then the Indians didn't win. And Maury continued, the guys they had said were going to be so good were so bad. And that was the moment when I thought, maybe the experts don't know what they're talking about. It's a moment where you say, that's interesting, or that's not right, or BS, end quote. So if we're curious, if we follow our that's interesting moments, we'll start to find things. Another tool we can use is distance. Dowsing cold water on hot takes requires distance in the form of physical spaces or experience time. Brian Koppelman realized this early in his career. When making round as the director John Dahl wanted to try a scene differently than what Koppelman and his partner David Levine had written. Koppelman consented and explained years later, quote, If you can train yourself to take the constructive criticism in and go away and wait until you're calm and dispassionately look at it, you'll be able to make better quality decisions, end quote. And this is true in his writing, too. Uh, Koppelman said that when he writes something, he thinks it's the best thing in the world. And then he lets some time go by, and then he's more open to getting feedback. The Moneyball Revolution catalyst was distance too. In the book Moneyball, Michael Lewis wrote, quote, What was true about baseball was true about other spheres of American public life, and to James the only sensible approach was to drop the pretense and embrace one's status as an outsider. This is outside baseball, James wrote. This is a book about what baseball looks like if you step back from it and study it intensely and minutely, but from a distance. It wasn't that it was better to be an outsider. It was necessary. Since we are outsiders, James wrote, since the players are going to put up walls to keep us out, let us use our position as outsiders to what advantage we can, end quote. Investors can see this in the home country bias, and Rosling encourages us to understand more of the world. He wrote, quote, Africa is a huge continent of 54 countries and 1 billion people. In Africa, we find people living at every level of development. In the bubble chart above, I have highlighted all the African countries. Look at Somalia, Ghana, and Tunisia. It makes no sense to talk about African countries and African problems, and yet people do, all the time. It leads to ridiculous outcomes like Ebola in Liberia and Sierra Leone affecting tourism in Kenya. A 100-hour drive across the continent. That is farther than London to Tehran, end quote. I looked this up because I was, I'm always struck by how big Africa is because it tends up to, it shows on maps as relatively small, depending on what, like we said, the agenda of the map maker. And Cairo to Johannesburg is about the same distance as Orlando is to Anchorage. And I know very little about Africa, but just thinking about the flight from Alaska to Florida, you have King Crabs, Portlandia, Las Vegas, the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, the Great Plains, the Bible Belt, the Deep South, the Gulf of Mexico, and then, on your descent, you land in... But getting distance isn't the only step, it's just the first. History is a domain where we have the distance of time, but we, as Rosling writes, quote, need to beware of rosy pasts. People often glorify their early experiences, and nations often glorify their histories, end quote. He wants us to think of the world as it is getting better, but not yet great. 
Groupthink tends to get dissolved with distance. Impulses become introspective. Blame transforms into explanation. Fear evolves into empathy. Our tendency is the now. Our advantage is in the later. Another solution is to ask, what's cheaper than a helicopter? Roslin wrote this, quote, For 10 days or so in 2015, the world was watching the images from Nepal, where 9,000 people had died. During the same 10 days, diarrhea from contaminated drinking water also killed 9,000 children across the world. There were no camera teams around as these children fainted in the arms of their crying parents. No cool helicopter swooped in. Helicopters, anyway, don't work against this child killer. One of the world's worst. All that's needed to stop a child from accidentally drinking her neighbor's still lukewarm poo is a few plastic pipes, a water pump, some soap, and basic sewage system. Much cheaper than a helicopter. End quote. This is a point Rosling makes again and again in the book. He says that most children now survive not because of these grand inventions or these interventions that cost a lot of money. No, most people survive now because we can keep them healthier earlier in their life. He writes, quote, so if you are investing money to improve health on level one or level two, you should put it into primary schools, nurse education, and vaccinations. Big, impressive-looking hospitals can wait, end quote. Rory Sutherland suggested making trains more enjoyable, not making them faster. Gretchen Rubin writes about a friend who had a terrible commute. She hated uh, this drive home that she had. She thought about selling her house and moving. She thought about changing jobs. But, but the, the key to unlock the trouble commute problem was she wanted to be entertained during her commute. So once Rubin introduced her to podcasts and audiobooks, the problem of the terrible commute went away. That's a solution that is much cheaper than a helicopter. In one TED Talk, Rosling has this wonderful presentation where he has a washing machine on stage and he puts in a load of laundry. And then uh, at the end of the conversation, he takes out books and he says, what do you get out of washing machines? Books and the time to read them. That's something that is much cheaper than a helicopter. There are solutions out there that aren't big or grand or sweeping, but that can have impactful changes. Another solution is to travel. It's to be there. It's to go and see and talk to the people and understand their situation as deeply as you can. Rosalind wrote, quote, One of the best ways to do this, that's to understand problems, is to travel if you possibly can, end quote. He continues in another uh, section of the book, quote, When visiting re- in other countries, and not just the backpacker cafes. You realize that generalizing from what is normal in your home environment can be useless or even dangerous, end quote. That's that home country bias we talked about. It's not having a wide enough scope. At one global economic meeting that Roslin went to, he talked to a government official from another country, and this was an official who was responsible for conveying to the world how his country was doing, but the country didn't keep very good economic statistics. So Roslin goes up to the guy and he's like, hey, hey, um, how do you really keep track of this? You say things are getting better, but how do we know that? And this is what he recounts the government official telling him, quote, When I travel across the country, I look at the construction going on. If the grass is growing over new foundations, that is bad. But if they keep putting new bricks on, then I know people have money to invest and not just consume day to day, end quote. 
being there is so important, whether it's a business or whether it is someone like Rosling who is trying to make big changes in the world by doing the right little things. But for anyone to make changes, for you or for me or for um, anyone who is continuing Hans Rosling's work, we have to understand the data and we have to have good numbers to start with. We have to have that factful mind view, that peaceful view where we know the things we're doing is backed up by these numbers and these lines and these trends. And that those aren't a perfect map of the world, that creating those is only taking a sampling of the world, but that sample can push us in the right direction. We can get past our biases and our fears in our immediate fast brain reactions if we take time and we get distance away from things. We need to be curious about the world. We need to be actively searching for things. We can't just take the statistics in the worldview we had when we learned about statistics in the world and move those to the current time because the world changes. We follow our that's interesting moments. And we ask questions like, what's cheaper than a helicopter? And how can I visit this place to learn more? Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave. And take your book with you. <laughs>